A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Saving Lives in Slow Motion. Today I'll be talking about medical diagnosis. Now it's a very common word, isn't it, diagnosis, and one that we associate with doctors and medicine. And it's something that comes into our mind when we have a symptom and you think, what's wrong with me? What's my diagnosis? And what I thought I'd like to do, uh, and why I think it's important, is that the way that we diagnose illness these days has changed um, over the years, naturally, with the advent of medical technologies and the speed at which um, we expect to find things out these days. You know, we live in a culture which is fairly immediate. And also, I wanted to explore a little bit about the challenges in making a diagnosis, a missed diagnosis or a delayed diagnosis, and also over-diagnosis, which is very much the flip side of the coin. So the first thing is about the word diagnosis. What does it actually mean? Where does it come from? Well, it's from the Greek um, diagnostikos, which itself comes from two words, uh, one meaning apart, which is dia, the other is gignoskin, which is to know or to recognize. And so it's become fairly common parlance in medicine to diagnose something. Um, so you're sort of ruling things out and ruling something in. It's really a way of identifying an illness based on symptoms and the nature of the patient's story and also physical examination. And nowadays, based on tests and investigations as well. So there's lots of different types of diagnoses. So some are what you might call spot diagnoses. And this is where something is really obvious or what sometimes in medicine we call barn door. So they're things like a ingrowing toenail or an abscess on your thumb or a sty or conjunctivitis, something that's really obvious. Then there's the ones that are a bit more nebulous. So they tend to present with a symptom that is not obvious. So abdominal pain, for example. And the way that most clinicians would crack that is starting with a history. So tell me about your abdominal pain. When did it start? How bad is it? Does anything make it better or worse? How long have you had it? What's the character of the pain? Does it pulsate or is it just a dull ache? 
And actually, a really good history can almost give you the diagnosis. You know, if, if you get all of the story out, you're halfway there. Then the next part is physical examination. Now, this is really important for certain presentations. So abdominal pain that's new um, is probably one that needs an examination. And that gives you even more of a clue as to what the diagnosis might be. And if you're still unsure, you'd then go and arrange tests. Now, they could be blood tests or x-rays or scans. So this is all well and good, particularly for things that happen fairly quickly. For example, kidney stones or a urine infection or appendicitis or a chest infection. What you might call acute presentations because they happen quickly. A lot of what happens to us in terms of our health doesn't work like that, and it happens in slow motion. So, for example, you don't just wake up one morning with an illness like MS or lupus or depression. It, it sort of comes over you over a period of time. And these conditions that are a bit more indolent can be quite difficult to diagnose because they don't present obviously they're not the barn door cases and actually you you wouldn't have an obvious symptom like tummy pain for example that would present to a doctor what about diagnosing those how does that work well it's much harder and often that is what fills a lot of general practice time slightly nebulous symptoms where the, the patient knows that something's wrong but they're not quite sure what it is. But again, you need to get the story and, if appropriate, examine carefully and, again, investigate. Now, often in this type of case, nothing comes up on the tests and there isn't anything obvious. So there's a lot of reassurance that, that goes on. And one of the things that certainly clinicians will try and do is is to hypothesize as to what is going on by trying to make it fit into a diagnosis. And certain conditions have what's known as diagnostic criteria. So sometimes these are things that the the doctor or the nurse will pick up. And um you know, think things change very quickly. I remember a few years ago I was interviewing a world expert on myeloma, which is which is a type of cancer of the bone marrow. And he knew I was a GP and said, oh, do you know much about myeloma? And I said, look, I've had a couple of patients in the last few years with myeloma. Um, and all I know in terms of diagnosis is crab criteria. And he sort of chuckled because the way that myeloma is diagnosed now is is so much more advanced it's um effectively molecular biology the, the kind of tools they use but what crab criteria you know what that is is just an acronym and the c stands for calcium elevation r stands for renal dysfunction a for anemia and b for bone disease and um I was quite chuffed with myself because sometimes you see these patterns on blood results, you know, when someone's got a high calcium, their kidney function is slightly off, they're anemic, and they've got some evidence of bone disease on an x-ray. Now that's a really specific example of how diagnostic criteria work for a particular condition, but often symptoms won't fit any diagnostic criteria. So patients and practitioners 
can get frustrated while they try and chase things down. And I'm sure that sounds quite familiar to, to many of you listening, where you have a symptom or there's something that's been grumbling along and you can't quite get to the bottom of it, you know, despite a very attentive um, clinician and all the best efforts, you, you can't quite pinpoint what's going on. And of course, nowadays, you know, we, we all look online. It's odd if you don't, in a way, um, to work out what's going on um, and what your symptoms might be. Actually, one that springs to my mind that I've seen recently a few times that I thought was COVID finger is called Achenbach syndrome. And this was something that a patient of mine told me about. I didn't know it had a name. It's effectively a painful finger where one area of the finger goes blue or purple. Um, I've always known it as a paroxysmal hematoma, which means a bruise that sort of comes when it likes kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, it just goes to show you that there are so many um, types of diagnosis out there that even someone like myself who's you know been been practicing medicine for quite a while um, is still learning. Now what do you do if you're in that boat where there is no firm diagnosis and, and you've got a symptom and everything comes back normal? Well I think some things you you know we are just forced to live with and you never get an answer and they often get lumped into this category of something called medically unexplained symptoms which is exactly that um, you can't explain what's going on but you know it's not serious if it is serious and things progress and, and things do get missed um, and I said we touch on missed or delayed diagnoses and, and unfortunately that does happen in medicine, um, there are certain conditions that are incredibly difficult to diagnose because of the way they present, including things like neuroendocrine tumours, or Lyme disease, or lupus. And often the symptoms can be quite vague, and even with the best will in the world and the best diagnostic tests, they can be really difficult to diagnose. One of the other issues in medicine is that often a doctor or a clinician won't make a diagnosis until a diagnostic test comes up positive. So this often happens with markers in the blood or on scans. And unless those things are there, you know, no clinician is going to actually say, oh, you've got X disease or Y disease. It goes back to those diagnostic criteria I mentioned earlier. And while I'm thinking about it, some diagnoses are, are really just the name of a symptom in some way, like irritable bowel syndrome or heartburn. And even the medical sort of terminology for heartburn, sometimes, you know, the diagnosis is, is put down as acid reflux or dyspepsia. And, and what they are are really just descriptions of what's going on rather than a firm diagnosis. You know, it's, it's a process in some ways. And sometimes it will it will just magically go away. I'll never forget this patient who had terrible, terrible heartburn symptoms for years. And then one day he walked into my room and said, bananas. And I looked at him and thought, sorry, what? And, and he went, bananas. It was bananas all this time. I've stopped eating bananas and my acid symptoms are totally gone. 
Now, it doesn't mean bananas are bad for you, but for him, that was the thing that was leading to his reflux. So whatever the diagnosis that he'd had put on him had disappeared. OK, so we've talked a bit about diagnosis, how that process works. The next thing is about whether it's helpful or not. Um, this is really interesting some patients really find it helpful to have a label for what's going on. So a common one for joint pains that are sort of unexplained would be seronegative arthritis. That's one that crops up quite a lot. I'm on the fence about this. I'm not sure it's particularly helpful unless, you know, if I was given a diagnosis, I'd really want to understand what the, what was going on. And, and often a lot of these um, labels don't have much behind them. You know, you get a lot of what, but not very much why. And the what, but not why, extends into something called overdiagnosis. Now, this is something that has really crept in, in in recent years because of the number of scans that we do. So very often you might be going in for a scan for your lower back, an MRI scan, for example, if you've got terrible sciatica and you've had it for more than three months, often you, you may be re referred for an MRI scan depending on your symptoms. But so often what gets thrown up during that are things like cysts that are seen on the kidney which in most cases, more than most cases, are totally harmless. But again, because of the diagnostic test, it's thrown something up. And it, it, it leads to that question about why are you doing a particular test and what are you going to do with the results of it? So thinking about the potential harm of this, imagine you were screening for dementia and for some reason there was a false positive result and someone was labelled as having dementia when they didn't actually have it. Or one that I remember and is still something that um, exists today, which came in a few years ago, is chronic kidney disease. And that's all to do with the way that we measure kidney function from a blood test and the thresholds and what they potentially mean. Yet several years Prior to that, people with exactly the same results would not have had that label of chronic kidney disease, you know, whether it's stage one, two, three or four. It, was, it wasn't classified in the same way. And the real danger of overdiagnosis is if it comes with overtreatment. And, and I guess if we just stop for a second and think about the journey I've just taken you along from diagnosis to potential missed or delayed diagnoses and then potential overdiagnosis, the skill in terms of getting it right for any clinician is right time, right place, right diagnosis. And that's tricky because most things are not barn door. Now, I don't know whether any of you listening to this have had experiences of any of these phenomena. And it, it's a really tough one because at one end of the scale, it's, oh, you know, why wasn't this picked up before? And at the other end, it's, well, do I really need to worry about this? I've been worrying about something that I don't need to worry about. How do we find the right balance? Well, where I sit is really 
in between that camp of prevention of disease as well as screening. Screening will detect disease early, so cervical screening or bowel cancer screening, for example, but it won't delay or prevent you from developing those conditions, whereas preventive medicine and preventive measures will. And I'd go back to my symptom web, which I talk about in the episode on lifestyle prescriptions. If there's something that really stands out to you, if you've got a really strong family history of anything, then mention it to your healthcare provider. If you've got persistent symptoms that are worrying, then that shouldn't be ignored and it should definitely be reported to your healthcare provider. I hope, if nothing else, this is giving you a flavour of how difficult it is to make accurate diagnoses. The point being that even if you could scan your body every month, you know, have an MRI scan from head to toe, it would pick up things that appear on the scan but are totally insignificant in terms of the impact on your health and that can create more worries. On the other hand, if you totally have your head in the sand and ignore symptoms, then something serious can crop up. So so it's it's not easy, this. It's not easy for patients, it's not easy for doctors, it's not easy for healthcare systems to manage diagnoses. Ultimately, you need a partnership between yourself and your healthcare provider and come to some sort of reasonable agreement on a plan. And, you know, things change. There's not a week that goes by where I don't, you know, have contact with a patient where we modify things or, or, you know, the situation changes and then you think, hang on a minute, actually, you know what, maybe you do need a further test to look at this. There's also something else I get asked, which is about screening and why um, screening doesn't happen more often. It's a great question. And... The reason is that there's a whole bunch of ethics behind screening tests and what makes them useful. A very common one that's that's really emotive is about prostate cancer screening. In other parts of the world where there is a lot of overdiagnosis, but you know there's a huge reliance on just having health MOTs uh, with with a menu of options like you know scans and blood tests. But that's because they're private and you pay for them. In terms of screening tests that are meaningful, um, in the show notes I'll I'll attach a link where you can have a look at what makes a screening test reliable. I think prostate cancer is a hard one. Anyone who's been diagnosed with it is often upset that they hadn't had a PSA test. Just while we're talking about PSA tests, one of the reasons that it's not part of a national screening programme in the UK is that the test is not really totally accurate. So if you get a high result, you may not have prostate cancer, but have to go through a barrage of tests, which can be quite uncomfortable to rule out that you have prostate cancer. And if it's normal, 15% of men with a normal PSA will still have prostate cancer. So it's not a great test. Having said that, if I if you speak to anyone who's had prostate cancer that never had a PSA, they will often be very upset. And, and the person who springs to my mind is Bill Turnbull, who um, is a TV presenter who's now retired. And and there was a really moving documentary uh, which I'll I'll post a link to, where he said, look, you know, if only I'd had this test, I would have found out that I had prostate cancer earlier, and then maybe it wouldn't have spread. And I totally relate 
to that sentiment. Um, it's interesting, actually. My 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 dad, who passed away in the summer, actually he, unbeknownst to us, was checking his PSA every year, and and in his mid fifties, actually, his PSA sort of jumped from I think something like two up to nine, so from low to fairly high. And he went to see a urologist and had some biopsies taken, and he had two positive biopsies out of eight and had a quick burst of radiotherapy and that was that and then in 2015 I think it sort of mildly recurred but was dealt with so is that a story where we think well hang on the PSA screening definitely saved him I don't know because had he not had the PSA done that cancer may have been very slow growing and still not have been doing anything well into his 70s. We just don't know. And so the jury is out on on things like PSA testing as a means of screening. The ethics of screening, I think, are fascinating um, and, and definitely worth a look. Okay, so we've covered medical diagnosis. We've looked at the pitfalls that can occur in overdiagnosis, in underdiagnosis, if you like, as well. Ultimately, I think... Most of us want the same thing. I don't want to die of something that is totally preventable and before my time. But equally, I don't want treatment for something that is unnecessary. Um, We're all ageing as time goes on. And, you know, the reason I do this podcast is because, you know, and the reason I call it Saving Lives in Slow Motion is because stuff happens to us in slow motion. Right now, there are processes going on in our body that you know, some good, some bad, and you, you, really what we want to do is make sure that there's more good than bad, and that comes down to looking after ourselves. In the show notes, I'm going to post some links, which just to get you thinking, so some are to do with Ivan Illich, who um, thought that the medical profession just medicalizes everything, and there's also a link to the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine and there's a lovely page with patient stories which I think will give you a little bit more texture in terms of the potential pitfalls. In the meantime, do take care, stay well and I will be with you again soon. Wow, that was a really long one, that's over 21 minutes. I do hope you enjoyed it and I will be with you again before you know it. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.